Well, we have finally reached the end of our series in the Gospel of John. And we started this series just a a little over two years ago on July 2nd of 17. And between Cameron and me, we have preached 92 sermons. This will be the 92nd one today. And uh, it's a bittersweet moment for me. You know, I I feel like... um, I've just grown so much closer to, firstly, Jesus, and and even to the Apostle John, who was the human instrument behind the authorship here. And uh, whenever I finish a book, I always feel like um, I'm I'm leaving a friend. Last Sunday, we we looked at the fourth post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, where he appeared to Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James... John and two unidentified disciples, and he appeared to them at the Sea of Tiberias, a.k.a. Sea of Galilee. And we learned that these men had attempted to abandon what they'd been called to do by Jesus to return to what they had been doing prior to being called by Jesus, and that was commercial fishing. And we examined the valuable lesson that Jesus taught them when he appeared to them on the shore there, that if they disobeyed him and essentially abandoned their mission, if they attempted to return to commercial fishing or any, you know, tried to transition into any other endeavor other than what he had called them to do, he would literally oppose them and cause them to fail. And we saw that represented in the fact that the first night they went out back to commercial fishing, they caught no fish, and that was deliberate. And yet, if they obeyed him and engaged their mission, their calling like they were supposed to, Jesus taught them that they would succeed, that he would support them, and that they would have a fruitful ministry. They would bear much fruit. And, uh, and then lastly, we saw how Jesus showed the disciples mercy, even though they had sinned against him by disobeying him and trying to go back to what they were doing prior to being called out. So he showed them mercy, he showed them grace, he showed them compassion as he made breakfast for them while they were still out there toiling and coming back to shore. He's on the shoreline and he's got a charcoal fire going and he's making them breakfast just uh, as a testimony to to the way God views his children, you know, that when we sin against him, it's by no means a good thing, and we ought to strive for holiness, but his mercy, as we just sang, is what? More. His, we've sinned greatly, but his mercy is more. And that is displayed in the text we looked at last week. In the final section, Jesus graciously reinstates Peter as the leader of the disciples. And this was necessary because Peter had, in the worst possible way, failed to do his job when he not only denied the Lord three times back in the courtyard during Jesus' first trial, but he's the one that wanted to initially return to fishing, and he led the other men to follow his poor example. And so at this point, uh, Peter was not being a good leader. He was not doing what he was supposed to do, but he was called to be the leader of the apostles, of the disciples. And so it was necessary that the Lord reinstate him. Because if you had sinned against Jesus in this way, would you not wonder if you were still the leader? For crying out loud, some Christians sin against Jesus and they wonder if they're saved. Peter needed to know that he was still the appointed leader by Jesus. And so did the other apostles. How would they follow Peter and Peter's instruction and submit to him if they thought, well, this guy's a bonehead? Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 21. We will be focused on the very last section, verses 15 through 25. So let's pick it up where we left off last Sunday, and that would be verse 15a. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. So we want to stop right there because this little half verse is loaded with all kinds of goodness. John tells us that the reinstatement that we're about to read here occurred immediately after breakfast. Remember how I told you the Lord showed them compassion even though they had sinned against him. 
And he began that compassion by extending this warm hand of fellowship to them by making them a wonderful meal of grilled fish and grilled bread. Fish tacos is probably what it was and, uh, in, a, in a way. And, and so we know that they were about to sit and have breakfast back in verse 14. We know they were hesitant, but they finally did it. And so our context shows that they ate breakfast and finished it. And that's, that's where this whole reinstatement begins. And I want you to notice how Jesus calls him Simon. You see that? Now this indicates that there was a problem with Peter's behavior. By calling him Simon, which is his former name, because Jesus renamed him Peter, by calling him his old name, it indicates that there is a problem or had been a problem with, with Peter's behavior. And, and the funny thing about this gospel is that there literally is a pattern here for this. You'll see Jesus calling Peter, Peter. You'll see him call him Simon Peter, and you'll see him call him by his original name, and that's Simon. And, and whenever Jesus calls him by one of those names, it indicates something. If he calls him by the name Peter, then Peter is literally living out his new identity. He's being the Christian that God has called him to be. If he's referred to as Simon Peter by Jesus, he's being a little bit of his old self and a little bit of his new self, literally. If he's called flat out Simon, what does that mean? You're acting like your old dead self. And what has... Peter been doing over the course of the last few days, according to the narrative, acting like his old self. I want to go back to fishing. I'm tired of the ministry, right? Lord knows I've felt that way, but I can't fish, so I've wanted to go back to other things. But literally, he calls him Simon here because he's been acting like the old Simon. Uh, here's, here's an example of this. When they were back, and this is just a few days earlier, when they were back in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and they were there and kind of praying, and Jesus had, had commanded Peter and the disciples to, to stay, a, stay awake and stay alert because Jesus knew that his betrayer was coming with that multitude, and Jesus literally tells them, stay awake, stay alert, and what do they do? <laughs> they doze off, they fall asleep, they were exhausted, and Jesus comes back over to where they were staying and finds them sleeping, finds them dozed off. And he literally says this. He says, Simon, are you asleep? <laughs> right? Could you not watch for one hour? And that's uh, over in Mark chapter 14, verse 37. So there's an instance where Peter acts more like his old self, disobeys the Lord, decides to take a nap when he should have been watchful, and he's called by his birth name, which illustrates this reality. Think of it like this. Jesus called Peter by his former name, Simon, when he acted like his former self. And he called him Peter when he was acting like his new self. And he called him Simon Peter when Peter was totally and absolutely confused. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be the old me or the new me right now. He was a hybrid. How many of you have ever experienced that in your own life? How often do you spend time being the old Phil and the new Phil, and sometimes at the same time? I've done that. I do that too often and too frequently. So that's what we see here. And we see this combination, Simon Peter, right there in verse 15, where John refers to him. That John picked up on this. Look at him. He's confused. So he was just as guilty because he'd gone fishing with them. But it does indicate there's issues here by calling him Simon. And notice also how Jesus refers to him as son of John. Okay, he calls him Simon, son of John. This is one of two instances where we see the Lord identify Peter in this way. It was not, in other words, it was not normal or repetitious for Jesus to say Simon or to say Peter and then follow it by his parents' name or whoever he's the son of. That's not normal for Jesus to do that. He only did it one other time, and we see that in Matthew 16. And when did he do it in Matthew 16? He did it when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, the whole community was confused as to who Jesus was? Well, some say he's Elijah, back from the dead. Some say he's a great prophet. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? 
And, and he literally tells him, he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then right in that moment is when Jesus gives Simon before then his new name, Peter, which translates as Petros, which means rock. And you know the famous statement, on, based on your testimony of me being the Christ and the Son of God, based on that testimony, on that rock of truth, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You remember that text? So the other time that he calls him the son of John was when Peter made that confession. So it would appear from our text that Jesus was not only correcting him by calling him by his former name, Simon. He was also reminding him of his previous confession as well as his new name calls him son of John here because he's telling him, do you remember last time I called you that? It was when you made that profession, the highest profession any apostle had ever made. You made that profession, and I gave you a new name. And so what is he doing here? He's reminding him of that profession. He's reminding him of who Jesus is, but most importantly, he's reminding Peter of who he is. Peter, the rock. The apostle, the leader of the apostles, that's what he's doing here. It was as if Jesus had said to him, Simon, son of John, do you remember when you confessed that I am the Christ and the Son of God? Do you remember how I called you blessed because the Father had revealed this to you? Do you remember how I gave you a new name? Have you forgotten who you are? It would appear so. That's what Jesus is saying to him. He's saying, you're still Peter. Be him. Don't be Simon. Don't be the hybrid. Be the man I've called you to be. That's what Jesus is telling Peter here. Part of his reinstatement, right? Got to get that identity down. In verses 15b through 17, Jesus does something that's just startling. He does something that I think terrifies every true disciple and believer. He questions Simon's love and devotion to him in an effort to expose deficiencies in it, in an effort to decimate his pride. We know that Simon had a high view of himself. This is displayed through the Gospel of John and through the Gospels. Um, he had this spirit of pride all the way up to the point of Pentecost, and even after that he had a little bit of it, and he had to get rebuked by the Apostle Paul. But he had a pride issue. Any of you have a pride issue? He had a, a pride issue. He had a high view of himself. He was, what we would say, notoriously prideful. He had boasted about his ability to protect Jesus, right? I'm going to Jerusalem. That'll never happen. I'll protect you. We're not going to let you get betrayed and crucified. I, I've got this. I'm your security guard, you know? Matthew 16, 22, he boasted about his ability to protect Jesus. It's like an ant protecting a lion. Come on. He boasted about his courage and his commitment to Jesus, right? Chapter 13, verse 37. You know, hey, I want to go with you where you're going. I want to do what you're doing. You're going to lay down your life. I'll lay down my life, guaranteed. And after that, he was told, uh, by the way, you're going to, because I know all things, you're going to, Deny me three times. You're not going to be the tough guy. So we know because of Scripture, especially the Gospel of John, that he had a pride issue. He had a high view of himself. And Jesus is, is, is going to decimate and destroy it throughout this interaction with him here. We're going to see it in the text. And I would say it's because pride has no place in the church. Pride has no place within the body of Christ, you know, Pride is, is an antichrist. Pride comes before the fall. God opposes those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? This is what Scripture clearly teaches. And, and I think pride is deadly at the congregate membership level, but it is far more lethal at the leadership level. It can destroy entire churches and families. It's a plague. It's, it's a disgusting disease. And this guy is going to be the leader of the apostles. 
how would pride serve him or them well? It wouldn't. Jesus is after unity in the body of Christ. Jesus is after cohesion and love. And it takes humility and grace to pull that up. But pride destroys and attacks all of that. Pride gives no provision for mercy, no provision for grace, no forgiveness. Peter can't remain in his pride. Jesus has challenged him consistently throughout the ministry. But this is the defining moment where the pride has to go, Peter. Well, Simon, because that's who you've been acting like. He had to deal with Simon's pride before he could be reinstated. It was necessary. Since Simon denied Jesus three times, chapter 18, verse 17, verse 25, verse 27, you remember when we studied that text, he denies Jesus three times. What does Jesus do here? He calls his love and devotion for Jesus into question three times. He matches him. You deny three times, I question three times is what the Lord's going to do here. Now we can move to verse 15b. Here's the first one. This is a howitzer blast. This just blew Peter right off the beach. I guarantee he was not expecting this. Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus follows up with, he said to him, feed my lambs. We stop there. Jesus begins by asking Simon if he loves him more than these. What are the these? What was Jesus referring to? Or better yet, what was he pointing to when he said this? Obviously, if he says, do you love me more than these? There's something within their eyesight here. There's something within their, their view here that he must have been pointing to. And some speculate and say he was pointing to the other disciples. Well, that, no, he wasn't pointing to the other disciples. Peter had not failed to show that he loved Jesus by loving the disciples more. Peter had not loved the disciples well by leading them to abandon their calling. There's no way Jesus could have been pointing to the, the other six men who were on the beach. What must he have been pointing to then? The bountiful catch, the 153 large fish, the boat, the nets, the, all of the paraphernalia, fishing paraphernalia associated with commercial fishing. He was pointing to all of that. I think especially the fish. They had just got done counting all the fish because commercial fishermen counted the fish so they could divvy it up. They could split it up among all those who were on the boat working. So I think he's pointing at, at the fish, and this image captures that. There's literally fish all over the ground, and it's like, do you love me more than these? I think that's what he's doing here. I think that's what he's saying. In other words, he's saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than commercial fishing? And how does Simon answer? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, according to MacArthur and others, and I think not just according to those good commentators, those guys who are good at studying the Bible, but according to the original language, the Greek, there's an amazing wordplay playing out here in the text. The word Jesus used for love is agapau. Sometimes I call it agapeo, but it's actually pronounced agapau. And agapau refers to the deepest, most profound kind of love, love that implies total commitment. Uh, it's derived from the Greek verb agape, or agape, which you're probably more familiar with than agapau. So when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, he uses the Greek word agapau, referring to the deepest, most profound kind of love, the kind of love that God has for his people. But when Simon answered, he did not use the same Greek verb, agapau. He responded and used the Greek verb phileo, which is a far less lofty, lower term for love. It denotes loving affection. Think of the city 
Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a combination of two Greek words, phileo and adelphos. Adelphos means brother, phileo means brotherly love. The motto, or what is the moniker of Philadelphia? It is the city of brotherly love. And so Jesus uses this high word for love, but Peter responds with a lower word for love. His word phileo doesn't encapsulate this deep, abiding, committed, sacrificial, profound love. He responds with a lesser love. Why did he reply with a different verb? Why did he return back to Jesus agapau? Did he not have agapau, love for Jesus? I think he did love Jesus with that kind of love. I, I don't think that he would have followed Jesus through thick and thin for three and a half, three years if he had only loved him with brotherly affection. He loved Jesus tremendously. Did he love Jesus as much as Jesus loved him? No, that's impossible. But he still doesn't respond with the same kind of verb here. Why? Well, Peter may have been prideful and a knucklehead sometimes and impetuous, but he wasn't stupid. When Jesus questions him on this, Peter was realizing here his behavior. He knows that he had denied the Lord three times, which certainly didn't communicate agapal love. He attempted to go back to his former career and lead others to do it, which certainly did not communicate to Jesus agapal love. So the issue isn't whether or not he loves Jesus in the right way. The issue is he wasn't willing to admit that he loved Jesus with that high love because of his stupid behavior. So Peter was realizing that his behavior prohibited him from declaring the highest kind of love for Jesus. He, he's basically admitting to Jesus, yes, I love you, but I have not loved you the way that I should. My behavior would contradict me if I were to tell you that. This is an amazing moment for Peter. This is the grace of God breaking that heart of stone. Because all the other times, if he'd ever been questioned this, he would have said, I love you more than you love me. Because of his pride, because of his false view of himself. And here he says, I love you, but I know I haven't loved you the way that I should. I can't return to you, Agapal. I tried to take these guys on an adventure away from the ministry. I tried to take them back to fishing. I denied you. Peter's finally coming to terms with his own depravity, his own inability. He won't dare claim that he loves Jesus like he should. He knew that wasn't true, at least through his behavior. And Jesus was pleased. Jesus was pleased with Simon's change of attitude. He was pleased with his transparency and honesty here. And he replies to him, feed my lambs. In fact, I'm convinced that if Peter had claimed to love Jesus with agapal love after doing all that he did, Jesus would not have said, feed my lambs. He would have said, you still don't get it. Because Peter, for the first time in the ministry and in his life, was starting to get it, and he admits it, Jesus can move forward with him. You are to feed my lambs. This was nothing less than an invitation for Simon to return to his leadership position to the ministry. That's, that's what this is. This is Jesus' way of telling him, based on your humble profession of your sin, because humility will get you far with the Lord. Pride won't. Based on that, I want you to feed my lambs, meaning I want you to lead. I want you to return. You are being reinstated now. Now, he's not done with them, but I am going to reinstate you. <coughs> After being reinstated, his first task would be to feed Jesus' lambs. This would be part of his ministry calling, part of what he is to do. Who are his lambs? Who are Jesus' lambs? Well, since believers are his sheep, chapter 10, verses 7 through 16, and lambs are what? baby sheep, little sheep, Jesus was obviously referring to baby believers, newer believers. Jesus was calling Simon to, to feed them, to feed new believers, not with 
what is sizzling on the grill or was an hour earlier or 10 minutes earlier. What was that? Fish and bread. I don't want you to feed them with that. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about feeding them the Word of God. He's talking about preaching the Word of God to them. He's talking about training them in Scripture. Why? So that those baby believers will grow spiritually into mature, into the mature faith. Peter even talks about this in his first epistle, I believe. He talks about how new believers crave spiritual milk, but they are to, as a child grows and begins with milk, they are to sort of graduate upward. They are to ascend into other food groups. It's part of growth. And in, in spiritual or Christian categories, it's the same thing. We start out kind of on spiritual milk, the milk of the word, but we know that the Word of God is, has more than milk. We know that it has great meat. We know that it's carb-free. Thank God if you're a keto person. Because it's meat, and meat doesn't have carbs. I love meat. Yeah, I'm on a diet. Last night I was at a gig, and everyone was eating bread. I was like, oh, Lord, come back tonight. Get me out of this carb hell bread everywhere. It was everywhere. They kept walking by. I was like, ah, bread. Oh, I text Rachel, they have bread. Sinners. She's like, put your nose in your controller and play music. And, and the word is meaty. It's not just tri-tip, it's filet mignon. And so, and so God calls his people, right? They start here and they, and they grow as they dine on the word. And he wants Simon, he wants Peter to be one. He wants him to be a chef to preach and to feed the young believers. That's what he's calling him to do here. Now let's move to verse 16. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, man. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus replied, tend my sheep. So Jesus asks Simon if he loves him, aga pal, right? Same words are being used here. He asks him, do you love me, aga pal? The deepest, most profound kind of love. He asked him the same question a second time. And the repetition here makes Simon even more aware of his failure to love Jesus rightly. And if you get called out for your poor behavior and your lack of love once, that stings. But if you get called out again, you're like, oh, man. It's really more like a dagger or a sword right through your heart, right? And, and so now Peter's like, oh, boy, I hope he doesn't ask a third time. <laughs> Just wait. He's got three bullets in his revolver. He's going to use all three of them. And he asks him this, and I think it makes him more aware of his lack of love or his not loving Jesus rightly. And, and what does he do here? He, he does um, confess his failure. He admits his failure a second time. He replies with the original answer, I, I, you know, Lord, you know that I love you, and he uses phileo again. So he replies with a lesser love, which shows that he's still humble, he still gets it. And I think here he's even more convicted. And, and Jesus was once again pleased with his change of attitude and transparency. I think Jesus was thrilled that Peter, after being called out once, didn't immediately switch to Agapal. Well, now that I've, I've blown it, I feel much better. Yeah, I love you as much as I should. I think Jesus was thrilled that he didn't pull a switcheroo here. He's still going down. You know, he hasn't reached Psalm 51 level yet, but he will. But he's still going down, which is a good thing, because down is where we need to get to first. And he was pleased this time with him, his transparency, and he replies to him a second time, but he switches it up a little bit. Tend my sheep. The Greek root word for tend is poimino, and it expresses the, the full scope of responsibility that pastoral oversight entails. In other words, when, when he says, tend my sheep, he's telling them from, from A to Z, take care of my sheep, take care of my people. And, and the idea is that he, he wants him to be an under-shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. 
He's the ultimate shepherd. He's the perfect shepherd. Um, but Peter was to become an under-shepherd for him. And, and the idea there is that Peter is to do the things that Jesus would do for his sheep, like feeding them with the word, like protecting them from ravenous wolves, false teachers, praying for them, right? He's to do all of these things for the good shepherd while the good shepherd is away. He ascends, he goes back to heaven, he leaves Peter and the apostles to be his under shepherds. And guess what? This same command of tending the sheep is given to every pastor because there are no more apostles. There are only pastors now. There are only elders now. And we are in the succession of the apostles. So we as pastors, we as elders are to do what Jesus commands Peter to do. We are to tend the sheep, which means we are to feed them with the word. We are to protect them from ravenous wolves. We pastors are to pray for them, pray for their souls, pray for their lives. Not just their needs and their health issues and these sorts of things. Sometimes, and these things are important, aren't they? But sometimes we spend more time focused on those sorts of things than we do the deepest needs, which are spiritual needs. And I think Brandon and I were discussing this one time, or Mary, Brandon, and I were discussing this, but you really don't see Paul. Paul prayed all the time. Paul commends or commands the churches that he planted to pray, but he never tells them to pray for the sore foot. He doesn't. It's all about spiritual warfare. It's all about praying for souls. It's all about that. And I think, quite honestly, we have this prayer thing in here. I think it's a good thing that we're praying for people's needs, but I think we focus more on that stuff. When every one of those ailments is given, sometimes we're praying, we are literally praying against the will of God when we pray for somebody's healing. When we pray for somebody to get out of the hospital, we're literally praying against the will of God. It is His will that they are there. And we don't want them there. So who are we going against? Wouldn't it be better for us to pray for their comfort, to pray for their witness, instead of always praying for their healing and restoration? And then what happens? We pray for their restoration all the time, and God doesn't heal them. Then we go, what were you doing we all prayed that you would heal that person. We're angry now at God. It's his fault. And I think God is trying to convey to us, I never wanted you praying for their healing. I wanted you to pray for their comfort. I wanted you to pray for their peace. I wanted you to pray that they would be a sound witness for me. I had no intention of healing them. I'm bringing them home, which is, not according to you right now, the best scenario, right? Think about that. We've had an enormous amount of prayer requests, and primarily they are focused on these needs. And I get it. God knows we have needs, and we are to pray for one another. But let's not forget to pray for the first things, right? For the first things. And he wants pastors to pray for his flock. He does. He wants pastors to do all of these things, and that's what he's telling Peter here. You need to do that. You need to tend my sheep. Now let's move to verse 17. Jesus said to him a third time, once, twice, three times a correction, right? I mean, it's like, it's like a bad 70s song here. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh my goodness. If I was Peter, I would have jumped in the water and swam to the other side. And, and look at John uses Peter's name. He doesn't say Simon or Simon Peter. He says, Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And Peter responds to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus replies with, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So Jesus asks Simon the same question a third time, but Simon doesn't immediately reply with his original answer. Why? Because he was grieved now. He was grieved. What grieved him? Well, some say that it was the repetition. You know, I mean, if, if your spouse or a close friend asked you if you, if you loved them three times in a row, especially after you blew it, you would begin to wonder if they actually believe you, right? You would say, why do you keep asking me this? I already told you. And they would say, because of what you've been doing. That's why I'm not sure. Because your behavior contradicts your testimony here. You know? But some say it's that. It's the repetition. Peter was grieved because it was like Jesus just kept asking and asking and asking. 
And we, we definitely become grieved when our love is questioned, especially repeatedly, right? And the text does, in the English, does seem to indicate that the repetition is what caused his grief. But there's much more to it here than that. You, you can't see it with your regular eye. If you could read Greek, you could. I can't read Greek. I have to look at, you know, resources. And here's the difference. Jesus does not use the same Greek verb for love that he used in verse 15 and 16. He did not say, Simon, son of John, do you agapau me? He did not use the same Greek verb. Instead, he used Simon's word for love, phileo. Why? Because he was calling into question Simon's even lesser love that Simon literally thought he was safe in claiming. It was as if Jesus was saying to him, you keep claiming to have loving affection for me, but is even that actually true? (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying to him. And the implication that Simon's life did not support even that level of love for Jesus literally shattered his heart. This is why he was grieved. It wasn't just the repetition. It was because Jesus used the word for love that Simon had returned to him twice. And all Simon could do at this point is appeal even more strongly to Jesus' omniscience. You notice how he said, Lord, you know, Lord, you know. And here he literally says, Lord, you know everything. You're omniscient. You know it all. You know that I love you. This is all he can do. Simon was shattered and broken. But he says, Lord, you you know all things. You know everything. You, you, You know that it's true that I love you. You know it. He just appeals to him. That's all he can do. Look with your omniscient eye. See it. Lord, don't say that I don't love you at all. Don't say that I that I don't love you as a, as, a, as a brother at least. That's at least true, Lord. That's what is happening. And for the third time, Jesus accepts Simon's recognized failure. He, he accepts his confession. And what does he do? He charges him to care for his flock. And he just simply says, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. It's really all synonymous. Be Peter and be the pastor I've called you to be. You profess to love me. There's no better way to show that you love me than to obey me. And here's what I command you to do. What is happening here? The reinstatement process is now complete. It's complete. And in the next section, Jesus prophesies about Peter's martyrdom, the way that he will be put to death because of his faith. We can move to verses 18 and 19 now. Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, and this is a parenthetical statement from John. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And then it says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus begins here after his reinstatement. He's kind of in the commissioning phase here. He begins with his classic double emphatic, truly, truly, or in some translations, verily, verily. What does this signify? It signifies that Jesus is about to say something of super high importance, and his readers or hearers at that time should pay close attention. That's what it means. You don't see these very often in Scripture. 
But we see one here. He's telling Peter, listen very closely to me. This is going to happen. And he begins by describing the, the freedoms that Peter enjoyed during his youth, such as dressing how he wanted to dress and, and going wherever he wanted to go. Jesus then switches gears and begins to describe what will happen when he is older. He says, another will dress you. They will carry you where you do not want to go. In other words, men are going to seize you, Peter. They're going to grab a hold of you, and they are going to bind you. They are going to tie you up. They are going to handcuff you, and they are going to put you in a place where you do not want to be, and that's prison. That's jail, a holding cell. And after being incarcerated for a period of time, Jesus tells him, you're going to stretch out your hands. And what does the stretching out of hands signify? Crucifixion. He will have his hands stretched out and nailed to a crossbar. His legs will be stretched downward and nailed to the beam. In other words, he's going to be crucified. He will be crucified. The ancient historian Eusebius tells us that later on Peter was indeed crucified. But when it came time for his crucifixion for following Jesus, his martyrdom, his death, when it came time for that, Peter refused to be crucified right side up. He demanded that he be crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He did not feel worthy to be put to death in the same direction or fashion, which is amazing. And this is told by Eusebius, who is a legitimate historian. I believe it's true. It's not just tradition. And, and history also tells us that before Peter was executed, his wife was paraded in front of him and nailed to a cross. So, so as he's about to be nailed to a cross upside down, he watches his wife walk in front of him. They lock eyes, and I think he was saying, it's okay. And then they killed her. Why? For following Jesus. And then they did it to him. But this is what Eusebius tells us happened. Now, Jesus' prophecy about Peter's crucifixion and death is, is certainly sad. And it's alarming, right? I mean, keep in mind who he's talking to, the guy who's going to experience this stuff. It must have been a bit alarming to Peter as he tells him, hey, they're going to stretch out your arms. And Peter knew what he meant. But I'll tell you what, it, it has some positive aspects to it. It's not just doom and gloom. Okay? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First, the fact that Peter will be crucified, that he will be martyred for following Jesus, proves that he did not repeat the despicable act of denying the Lord. How do I know that to be true? Because Romans did not crucify unfaithful Christians. They crucified those who shined the brightest. They crucified those who lived for Jesus and who testified to Jesus and those who did not back down. All you had to do is say, I renounce Jesus and accept the emperor as my God and leader and you're not going to be killed. You might be given a, a place to live and free food the rest of your life. They killed those who were faithful. Think about that. Because if you denied the Lord like Peter did, and let's say you get reinstated, would it not be in the back of your mind that am I going to do that stupid thing again? I mean, we tend to repeat our sins, right? Drives us crazy. So this had to be going through Peter's mind. He's terrified at the prospect of being crucified, but at the same time, he's probably thinking, hey, that indicates that I'm going all the way through. I'm going to cross the finish line. What an encouragement this must have been to him. Because like I said, Rome, they don't crucify unfaithful Christians, only those who are faithful. He remained faithful, and the fact that he's going to be killed for it proves it. 
So that's a positive. That's, a, that's an insanely high positive for him. I love that. I bet you as he did ministry, he anticipated the day and time and moment where he would be bound up and martyred. And maybe sometimes there was some trepidation and fear there, but I think for the most part it bolstered him. I'm going to be killed for the Lord. I mean, after he got whipped, him and John got whipped and beaten for preaching the gospel, they didn't go out of there going, oh man, I can't do this anymore. They went out of there going, woohoo, we were, we were worthy of the name. We suffered for Jesus. You know, in the first century, being persecuted and suffering for Jesus was a badge of honor. Today, Christians do everything they can to avoid it. Oh, this, this, is, this is a good thing for Peter. He's afraid, but he's saying, oh, that indicates that I'm going to go all the way. The Lord is going to carry me all the way through. It's a good thing. Another reason why it's a good thing is that John says in his parenthetical statement that Peter's crucifixion, his death, will glorify God. Verse 19a. You know, when a, when a saint believes that God is sovereign, that God is in control that saint believes that and humbly accepts his or her circumstances, endures pain and suffering with grace, and testifies to others of the comfort and support they have in Christ Jesus. God is so glorified by them. In fact, I'd venture to say it's impossible to glorify God without suffering. God was ultimately glorified by the life Jesus lived, absolutely, but by that death on the cross, by that suffering, God was glorified because His justice was proven and His mercy was proven. John Piper once said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I believe that, but I would say God is most glorified in us when we suffer well. And here we are praying against all the suffering. We want healing. Suffering in a mature saint brings God glory. And when death comes and that saint transitions out of this tough, difficult, strenuous, heartbreaking life into the glorious presence of his or her Savior, God is glorified again through the bringing of his child home. And he is glorified through the words and testimonies of those at the funeral, is he not? He is. He is. God will be glorified when Peter is bound, crucified, and killed. Because Peter will remain faithful. He will lean into and press into the grace of God like never before. He will be a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ in the faith. He is going to die well. And I love what A.W. Pink wrote. He said, like Samson, we may do more for God in our death than we did in our lives. And he says, the death of the martyrs, you know, all those who have been killed for following Christ, the death of the martyrs had more effect on men than the lives they lived. You see, we need, to, we need to change our view of death. Death is an opportunity for God's glory, and we should embrace it as such when our time comes. Peter certainly did. He did. He embraced it as God's will. I mean, he, he was even given a prophecy that said it would happen. I'd say he had a little advantage. Nobody's ever told me you're going to die through this or that. But the scriptures are clear. I will die one day. How am I going to respond when that moment comes? I hope like Peter. I hope I'm a testimony for the Lord. I hope that I tell people about the gospel. I hope that I tell people about where my comfort's coming from. I have the Lord. Peter did this. And after prophesying about his martyrdom, Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and he tells him just plainly, follow me. <laughs> Imagine being told to follow Jesus after he tells you that following him will result in a horrific 
humiliating death. How would folks today respond to this kind of radical call to be ready and willing to sacrifice all things, including life itself, to follow Jesus? I mean, is that what's being preached today from pulpits? Or is it you can have your best life now? Bunch of malarkey. How would people respond to Jesus' radical call to death? Follow me means death. How would they respond today? I think they would run out of those worship centers. There'd be a few bold ones in there. They would flee. They would run. And I tell you what, I'm so glad that Jesus no longer demands this kind of commitment from prospective disciples. Aren't you glad? Don't nod your head up and down. He demands the exact same thing today. His words never changed. (laughs) The cost of discipleship is just as stringent today as it was back in the first century when the scriptures were written. It's not changed. It's not gotten any easier. No. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To follow Jesus means to be willing to sacrifice everything in submission to his will and to obey his commands and to imitate him. Those who think they can follow Jesus apart from these things are deceived. And those who preach that Jesus can be followed apart from these things are devils in disguise. The cost of discipleship is still high. It is forfeiture of life and possessions and anything else that the Lord demands at any given moment. How did Peter respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him unto death? Verses 20 and 21, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this guy? <laughs> Just like, Jesus, I wonder if Jesus picked up one of the fish. Come here. Yeah, smack him, give him a fish slap. He needed to be fish slapped. (laughs) Give him a big fish slap. These were large fish too, but knocked him out. It would appear that Jesus' prediction of Peter's martyrdom prompted concern about what would happen to his closest friend and companion, John. John consistently identifies himself in this gospel as the one whom Jesus loves. He is also the one who was leaning against Jesus during the Last Supper and asked Jesus, well, who is it here that you said somebody here is going to betray you? Which one is it? It turned out to be Judas Iscariot, right? Chapter 13, verses 25 and 26. While they were walking along the beach, right, because it says that um, the one that Jesus loved, John, was following them. So now they're walking along the beach, maybe just the three of them. I don't know if the other guys are there. But while they're walking along the beach, Peter turns and points to John and says, "What, what about this man? What's to happen with him? It was as if he had said, if I'm to be crucified and killed, you know, bound, crucified, and killed, what's up with John? What's he going to go through? <laughs> Look what Jesus does in 22 and 23. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me! Exclamation point. 23, so the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So what Jesus does to Peter here is he, he rebukes him, and he rebukes him harshly. What happens to this guy right here, the one you're pointing to, what happens to John has no bearing on your responsibility, Peter. It's not your business what happens to him. Maybe, maybe Peter was hoping that his best friend would go through just as much trouble. And in many ways, I think he went through more trouble because he was exiled to a dry, desolate prison island. I think death and going to Jesus is much better than languishing on a prison island. I don't know about you. He was put on Alcatraz, but there was no greenery. No pretty city in the background. 
Jesus literally hits him with a hypothetical statement. And this is what he means. If I, if I want to keep John around till my second coming, what business of yours is it? This is what he says to him. And then he reiterated what he said just a few moments ago, but he says it with way more force this time. You follow me, exclamation point. Don't worry about John and what's going to happen to him. You worry about you. Your attention is to be on you, not on him. That's what Jesus is telling him. Apparently those who were nearby, the other disciples, misunderstood Jesus' rebuke and began to spread a weird rumor that John would never die, like he would become immortal, or maybe he would be mysteriously carried away into heaven like Enoch or Elijah. Verse 23b, John sets the record straight by clarifying that Jesus never said anything about him not dying. Now, it was important that, that John correct this rumor because he did not want people to question the truthfulness of Scripture, the accuracy of Jesus' prediction when John actually dies. Because he did die. He's the last apostle. When he died, he didn't want people thinking that, hey, you know, Jesus told John he would live forever. What happened? He died. Okay, the Scripture's nothing. Now we look at 24 and 25. These are John's closing remarks to this gospel. He says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John wraps up his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ by telling us that he is the disciple who witnessed these things and who wrote them down in this book. He's basically telling us, I was the one that wrote this. I was the one there on the beach. I heard what Jesus said. I heard the correction. I witnessed all the things that I've recorded in this book. And he's, he's basically telling his readers, his audience, because I am a firsthand witness and I was there and I wrote these things down, my testimony is true and trustworthy. That's what he's saying here in the end. And then at the verse 25 there, he makes it clear that his account is not exhaustive, for Jesus did many other things. He included a hyperbolous statement that causes us to wonder how much more did Jesus actually do, right? He did so many more things that if books were written, the world would not be big enough to hold them. I mean, that's, that's interesting. How many more miracles did he do? I mean, that's kind of the first thing that came to mind, and then I realized that has no bearing on me, just as Peter's concern for what would happen with John had no bearing on him. And you know what? Jesus did more than what's written in all of the Gospels combined. But what he did beyond the written record is not of our concern. We have enough material to keep us busy for 10,000 lifetimes. So let's continue to focus on what the Holy Spirit has graciously provided for us. Amen? Amen. Now let's close. I want you to look again at Jesus' question to Simon in verse 15b. This is where the rubber meets the road for us here. What did Jesus say to him? Do you love me more than these? While pointing to the fish and to the boat and all of the commercial fishing paraphernalia that was present points to that stuff. And Simon answered yes, but he used a Greek verb that clearly communicated that he had not loved Jesus like he should have phileo. And I think this was painful for him to admit, but it was totally necessary, right? The man needs to be reinstated. He's got to get real. He's got to get transparent. He's got to be humbled. The pride's got to be broken. And Jesus was like a, a wrecking ball here. My question is, and I just want you to think about this, what if Jesus were to look you in the eyes while pointing to your children, pointing to your loved ones, pointing to your friends, pointing to your homes, pointing to your possessions, pointing to your bank accounts, to your checkbooks, to your places of employment, and say to you, do you love me more than these? 
How would you answer him? And would your answer be supported by your behavior and your lifestyle? You see, Jesus loves us with agapow love. And because of this, we can love him with agapow love. 1 John 4, 19, right? God loved us that we would love him. And if you go and look at the Greek in, in 1 John 4, 19, you'll see that agapow is used in both his love for us and our love for him. Agapow, not phileo, agapow. But sometimes, sometimes we shortchange him like Simon did, don't we? I mean, are you guys ready to be honest? We allow things to come into our lives that distract us from loving Jesus rightly, that keep us from loving Jesus rightly. We turn good things that are intended for our good and blessing, we turn those things into idols that begin to dominate our time, talent, and treasure, don't we? You know, sex was given from God to human beings, to humankind, as something to be blessed and enjoyed. And I can't think of a thing that's been more abused than that. We take the good things that God has given us to be used in the right context for his glory, for our joy. We take those things and we chisel and carve and turn them into idols. For Simon, it was fishing. No, <laughs> I, I used to own a bass boat. I love fishing. You know, if I had a boat today, I'd try to go out. I love fishing. There's nothing inherently wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with shooting guns or playing basketball or doing any of the kind of hobbies and things that you like to do. There's nothing wrong with those things. Engaging in occasional leisurely activity like fishing does not indicate love loss for Jesus. But if fishing or some other hobby or anything dominates our time, talent, and treasure and prevents us from investing in the body of Christ, from being evangelistic and these sorts of things, that indicates something very profound about us. It indicates that we love ourselves more than Jesus. I mean, we would all say, oh, we all have agapow love for Jesus. I love him so deeply and he's my all in all. But does your lifestyle, does your spending, does the way you spend your time reflect that? Where do you invest? Because if you invest in the things of God, what you're saying is more believable. But if you're in the business of giving Christ next to nothing, nearly no time, talent, treasure, you're only lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. When we put someone or something ahead of Jesus in our lives, we are like Simon. We are loving ourselves more than the Lord. That's a hard, bitter truth, isn't it? MacArthur wrote, The true gospel call to follow Jesus Christ is a call to self-denial. It is not a man-centered call to self-fulfillment. There is no Christianity light. The gospel calls sinners to submit fully to Jesus Christ, to find their lives by losing them, to gain their lives by abandoning them, to live life to the fullest by emptying themselves. That's the call. That's the cost of discipleship. Christ first and always first. He demands it. And as we saw in the prior text, he has a beautiful supernatural way of removing the idols. A fishless night. Brothers and sisters, what is getting in your way of loving Jesus rightly? What idol is seated on the throne of your life? Jesus graciously led Simon Peter through a process that led to reinstatement. He can do a similar thing for us that leads to restored fellowship with him. If we realize that we have failed to love Jesus rightly because we have allowed things or people to creep in, take over, and dominate our time, talent, and treasure, dominate our lives... We need to confess this to him and repent. 
not enough just to acknowledge it and say it. We need to make changes. We need to cast down our idols. And we need to give Jesus priority and preeminence in our lives. If you're in Christ, I want you to understand how much he loves you. If you refuse to do this, he will take it by force. He will not compete with idols. He will remove them, including your children, if you exalt one of your kids above him. He will not share his glory with another, it says in Scripture. This is serious. You can't flirt with idolatry. You think, oh, that's an Old Testament concept. That's a New Testament concept. Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't have John 21, would we? He will do what is necessary to be preeminent in your life. And we are to follow Him. We are to follow Him, not just confess. Part of our repentance is following Him, not after the desires of our own lives and hearts. We need to follow Him. Peter was commanded twice to follow Him in the text. To follow Jesus means to, as I said earlier, not only to be willing to sacrifice everything in submission to his will, but to obey his commands and imitate him. That's what we're to do. I know it isn't easy, but that's what we're to do. Jesus demands these things from his disciples, and he has put his spirit in us so that we can do them. It is actually impossible for us to love Jesus perfectly, and Jesus knows this. He understands this. The reality that we cannot love him as we should does not negate our responsibility to love him as much as we can and to grow in our love for him and to display our love for him consistently through obedience to his commands. May we strive to love him with the love that he desires from us and the love that he deserves from us. He desires that kind of love, agapow, and he deserves it. And because he loves us with it, we can love him back with it. Whatever you need to do to stop shortchanging him, confess it, turn from it. Maybe you need help. Maybe you need some counsel. We have elders. We can try to help you. But whatever it is, this was a breaking point moment for Simon, for Peter. Maybe it's one for you as well right now. It's time to get real. And we can say we love Jesus over and over and over till we're blue in the face. But if our actions, if our lifestyle, if our behavior, if our attitude contradicts that, we're only lying to ourselves. And what did Simon say to Jesus? You know everything. Jesus knows where your love is. Now you know where your love is. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's time to do something about it.